It's Radiothon time again at 3CR. This year marks 40 years of Radical Radio at 3CR and we're asking you to keep us on air for another 40 years by donating your money to 3CR's Radical Radiothon. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy your podcast. And very welcome back to A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. It's Annie here on the microphone this morning for Solidarity Breakfast. And today it is election day, federal election day here in Australia. And uh, we'll have a little bit of a chat about the election in the first half hour. Uh, after that, we're going to take you to outside the uh, court, a court in Sydney, where Stephen Langford was being charged with uh, uh, damaging property. He wrote uh, Omid R.I.P. on Malcolm Turnbull's office after the self-immolation death of a young refugee in a detention centre, offshore detention centre financed by the Australian government. And uh, there were speeches outside which uh, gave a very clear view of uh, what was actually happening in Australia's complicity in the detention of refugees offshore. We're going to go then to Kevin Healy, who, of course, will only be able to enjoy a satirical breakfast when it comes to a federal election. We're going to move on to talk to senior lecturer, a former senior lecturer at Queensland University, Tom Bramble, who's also a SALT member, as, uh, to get his understanding of what happened, what's going to happen now that the Brexit uh, election is over in England going on from uh, Dennis's investigation on Stick Together, a fabulous interview by Dennis with uh, a union member, uh, official in England, for a union that did not support the remain remaining in the EU. There's been a, a, a lot, of, a deluge of mainstream comment on uh, the uh, impractical nature of Britain going out of the EU, but getting a, a, a staunch working class analysis is fairly important. Now, moving right along to uh, the uh, Radiothon and fundraising, I know, unpleasant, money, unpleasant. Uh, Solidarity Breakfast has still got a long way to go to uh, fill our uh, quota for the Radiothon. It's not too late. Want 
Want to keep your radio radical? Well, it's not too late to donate to 3CR's 40th birthday radiothon and we still need your support. Call 94198377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy during our office hours to pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, 40 years of radical radio. So now we're going to move on to a little discussion about the upcoming election. Now we're going to use uh, the framework of a couple of speakers at an event that was held at Melbourne University on Wednesday. It was called The Inside Story on the Australian Election 2016 and uh, it was billed as uh, joining political insiders. Now the insiders were, uh, interestingly enough, Peter Credlin, uh, she, of course, is a Sky News News Limited uh, journalist these days. But uh, previous to that, she was Tony Abbott's chief of staff, Malcolm Turnbull's chief of staff. Uh, then she was demoted to deputy during the Brendan Nelson period. She was a political advisor to Richard Alston and Robert Hill and Helen Coonan, all big buzzers for us on uh, our side of politics. And interestingly enough, she's married to the former federal director of the Liberal Party of Australia. So despite the uh, huge amount of lampooning, et cetera, et cetera, around her leaving the office of uh, when um, Tony Abbott was being targeted uh, for removal as Liberal Party uh, head, she was uh, uh, shown great respect during this night. So it's quite interesting to hear what she's got to say and uh, there's a couple of issues uh, and pronouncements that she makes which you might find uh, uh, interesting. But uh, I've uh, aggregated some of her comments as well as... uh, uh, ben Hubbard. I didn't actually put him into it. Ben Hubbard was the uh, is uh, uh, chief of staff for Julia Gillard during her uh, period as the 2011, 2013 uh, uh, prime minister. She, he uh, is obviously a Labor Party man, and he's a uh, he works for Morris Blackburn Lawyers. He uh, there's also other people there. We've got. Um, the uh, Barry Cassidy, who of course is ABC Insiders Program, and uh, Alan Winnett, who's the national political editor for the Herald Sun, and Andrea Carson, lecturer in media and politics at University of Melbourne. And you might say to yourself, why is she bothering to bring us this kind of material? These people have plenty of space on the mainstream media, and yes, indeed they do. But the in, in the evening was very interesting because. In one respect, it was really interesting to watch how propaganda, the role of propaganda, so propaganda uh, in normalising the status quo because uh, this, this actual event was quite clearly designed for what was considered to be the thinking people's uh, uh Audience who were going there to be to have an even tempered understanding of what was going on just days before 
the election. So it's impossible not to believe that it was supposed to have some effect on the way people perceived the election and also cast their vote. Uh, it focused on the mechanics rather than the politics, which uh, gives the impression that it's all terribly managed and uh, it was uh, all uh, under control. So let's hear what Alan Winnett, she's, remember, the uh, uh, chief political um, per, uh, person for the Sun Herald, what she had to say regarding the election and how it was in, how they viewed it, how they saw the mechanics of covering it. What we're seeing is that a 55-day campaign is really different to a 33-day campaign and one really obvious way I think that's manifested itself is all of the disasters in the early days of the campaign have virtually been forgotten. So um, when David Feeney forgot to declare his house, that was a big story and everyone went nuts about it for three days and I doubt anyone's thought about it for the last three weeks. When um, Labor was going through their pains with um, the breakouts on asylum seeker policy and campaign headquarters was trying to manage that, one of the things that someone in campaign headquarters said to me was, at least we got out of the way in the first week and we can move on from it. So, you know, you'll see polls this week that, that uh, will be tweeted out at 10 o'clock at night and will be on the front pages where you can go through it, pages and pages of it with all the graphs. You're going to get that in the newspapers the next day. Um, I, think, I think with broadcast journalism, what, what you get to see is the journalism being made. So when you're reading a paper, you're seeing the end result. But when you're seeing the broadcast journalism, so like Neil Mitchell's interview with, uh, with Julie Bishop, you're actually... That was a really forensic interview where he just, he just pulled apart the fact that she didn't know the answers on the superannuation policy, which was really problematic for them. And uh, if anyone saw what was going on at the National Press Club yesterday, the journos really pulled apart um, Bill Shorten on, on taking a quote taking it too far as to, as to what he could use it for. He was using it in the context of, of criticising um, Malcolm Turnbull for not being honest, but in fact he wasn't 100% honest himself in terms of using this quote. And if you watch the vision of it, you will see the journos just one after the other pulling that apart, and Sabra Lane just finished him <coughs> off with it. I think the journalists are still doing that work. Certainly our company has um, two reporters on each bus. We don't have our bureau chiefs or our political editors on the bus because there are 40 people there and you cannot have a conversation on the phone that other people aren't hearing. So the, the political editors and people who are tasked with finding exclusive stories are all back in their offices or doing day trips, which is how we've been doing it. So we are trying to cover the policies and the announcements. I know there's been a little bit of collaboration going on with the journos when, when the, um, the leaders are avoiding a question. The journos have caucused it a bit and said, I know he's not going to answer it, so I'm going to come in and have another go at it. But when you've got a lot of organisations there, you're trying to feed radio, TV, often their journos standing there reading out the question that the seniors in Canberra have asked them to, to ask. And so that can be where you get the very quick this question onto the next, onto the next, because you're trying to get those grabs up at night. All of the journos are trying to get a little piece of them for their stories at night or their next radio bulletin. And Andrea Carson, who is a lecturer in media and politics at Melbourne University, then went on to reinforce this notion that the whole of the election is about two parties, effectively, and how the ordinary person, uh, us, get their news. I think it's a marathon and not a sprint. 
And in terms of fragmentation, I tend to look at politics through the lens of the media and I would uh, say that there's been great fragmentation of audience, probably more so than what we've seen before with social media being used more and more for political communication, for politicians identifying that it's a fast and cheap way to be able to get a message out and to get those hard-to-reach voters that have been difficult to get perhaps in the past, people that are happy to chat about politics in a non-conventional sense on Facebook and be able to reach them through third-party groups perhaps politicians signing up to a charity that you might uh, follow on Facebook and getting their messages through that way. Traditional media, I think, has been much more fragmented too. You've got to remember that this campaign started on May the 8th. May the 9th, Fairfax announced more job losses um, and they were forced redundancies. And then on top of that, we haven't seen quite the rabid campaign uh, that we have seen in the past with News Corp doing those front pages that we saw in previous elections, such as uh, kick this mob out or does this guy ever shut up? We've had Bilnokio, but not quite to the same level. I think we get very comfortable with the kind of media we're used to consuming and we stay within that bubble and we don't necessarily uh, look at media that um, we're not as familiar with. So, But if we step back and look at everything that's available through the mainstream media and through social media, I think there's actually more attention to policy than there has been in the past. I think there's more information than there has been in the past. Political polling, that's a way for newspapers which long ago lost the competition on breaking news and also on dissemination to digital media. One way they can get back that agenda is to do the political poll, to sponsor those polls. They get the information first, they can build the story around it. Another way we see the pushback again uh, the professionalisation of the campaign is the gotcha moment, which I think is maybe um, not the best use of the media's time. And we've seen a little bit of that in this campaign with the gotcha moment against Julie Bishop and another one against Sarah Hansen Young. And Alan mentioned the one with um, David Feeney. He's had a few. <laughs> Uh, And the other way is to pull back the lens and we'll get to see uh, during a press scrum, the cameraman will show the press scrum, show the audience that this is a construction. This isn't um, a mirror of life. Whereas back in the day on the bus, there was this famous clip of um, John Howard. He flipped a coin. He was on the Tasmanian Oval, um, the cricket club there. And he flipped a coin to do the toss and Alan Border um, shook his hand. It was a wonderful moment. But you scan around, and this was um, a documentary that was made at the time, there was no one in the stand bar maybe three people and they weren't eligible to vote because they were kids. (laughs) But the next day, the front page coverage, it looked fantastic. So I think as an audience, we get to see a little bit more of that, of how these campaigns are constructed. And I think we need to look at other similar comparable democracies and there's similar trend lines going there as well, and that is that public trust increasingly is um, going down when it comes to our political representatives. But having said that, it's also going down when there's annual surveys about how much people respect the media. And so I think that's more an institutional thing, that the institutions that people once held dear in maybe the 1960s or the 1950s, as we've become more individualistic in our uh, lives and less about collectives, we've got less faith perhaps in some of the institutions around us, and that would include churches too. So uh, that's one thing that's going on, this decrease in public trust. And then uh, political parties have got um, time... They've got a media cycle that they need to respond to. The media cycle is very fast in terms of the reporting right throughout the day, um, putting things up online. 
a message can go out and it only takes one tiny thing to disrupt that message and suddenly they've lost the clean air for, that, uh, for the rest of that day and it becomes about the gaffe or about some unintended consequence. So it's a pretty tall order for politicians to be able to deliver um, constantly what they're being asked. Commentators such as Ross Gittins would say that um, politicians are losing trust because they're not keeping their promises. But the international data, including some studies we've done in Australia, doesn't necessarily back that up. And it might be that very high-profile promises get broken, and that's what we remember. But in terms of across the board, when um, parties make their pledges, by and large, they do their best to try and fulfil those, which is called promissory democracy. Um, but because there are the high-profile ones that get repeated again and again, it creates a perception that promises aren't kept, which again feeds into this cycle of a lack of trust. I've been involved with Vote Compass. Uh, Melbourne University has been the academic sponsor of Vote Compass and ABC, obviously, the media partners. And one of the things we do is we ask people to nominate what the most important issue is to them. And we did this in 2013 as well. And the types of issues, while important to many people, are consistently the economy, health, education, environment in the top four, and asylum seekers, perhaps. And that moves around a little bit, but they remain the most prominent issues that people notif um, put up there without being prompted of what they're going to put up. And I'm sure the political parties know this too with their focus groups and their polling, and they know what issues are the ones that people en masse care about the most and direct their campaigns accordingly. Now, as I said, this was an event that was all about builders, the inside story on the Australian election. And some of the people that turned up thought that they were actually going to be talking about issues and uh, politics. But really what they were talking about was the selling of the brand. And it was quite interesting to the mechanics, the mechanics of running an election. And it was made clear that actually the same kind of brand selling is the same kind of brand selling that you'll find in all Western democracies. Uh, there were a couple of questions that were uh, about politics but and major issues, but they were unanswered by the uh, panel. So one of them, which was quite a, a sneaky kind of weird thing from Les Field, was uh, implying that there's going to be a rift being created between youth and older people with this constant hammering around we're getting an ageing population and therefore all our policies need to change to uh, remove welfare because it costs too much. And a young fellow stood up and said, does that mean that we should give more weight to the youth vote because youth are the ones who are going to shoulder the burden? Which, of course, means that uh, the whole concept of democracy implodes if you give more, more weight to one sector. Maybe that's uh, a, a reflection on the incredible level of power that, uh, say, Tasmania has in the Federation. But, you know, who knows? But it was an interesting sort of development. Uh, there was also a person from who was a young person saying that uh, basically what uh, people are with climate change, uh, we uh, they are inheriting a... Uh, a, um, a a society that's on decline, in decline. And someone, an older fellow, rang, uh, sat up and uh, said, why is there no discussion about the neoliberal agenda? 
all of those issues were put aside, except for the uh, special weighting to youth vote. It was pointed out that in Brexit, for example, the uh, youth vote wasn't there. They didn't come out and vote. There was a very low level of youth vote. So uh, the idea was put to this young person that if you don't use it, then you will lose it. But moving on, uh, I'd like to uh, play you two of the heavyweights. You've got uh, Peter Krenlin and Barry Cassidy. Now, this really describes how Australia sees itself or it tries to see itself as a two-party system, when in actual fact we're in the middle of flux. And these are the kind of uh, ideas about propaganda that I find really compelling, that uh, there's this uh, normalisation of the status quo and everything else, it can't be... uh, being uh, thought through, even though one of the most important things about uh, the human uh, species is our ability to change our mind. So Peter Credlin is obviously, uh, sees herself as being a Liberal Party apparatchik, and Barry Cassidy, although he is the the long-in-the-tooth journalist, he is—he was actually the press secretary, private press secretary for... Uh, Hawk during his period, which is very interesting. And uh, also he, at the end of his speech, uh, both of these people's speeches, they have a point where the crowd, uh, it ends with the crowds clapping them. So you can see the difference between what they consider to be important and also what the audiences can, this type of audience, how what they were swayed by. So first Peter Krenlin then Barry Cassidy. Well, I think there's three campaigns and there's the national campaign, which I think everyone in this room is buying into. There's the local campaign that comes through your your mailbox um, if you're in the suburbs when you go to the local supermarket. Uh, to some degree, it's coming at your social media. It depends what medium you're on. Um, and then there's the campaign ground wall, which is the seat-by-seat battle run out of the campaign headquarters. In our case... That's Canberra. In um, Labor's case, that's Melbourne. And that is where the strategy for the campaign is run from. So you'll have the leader on the road, and yes, there's a lot that you can garner watching the other side where they move, the key messages, the design of their day, how early they start, the mix of media that they get across. Um, Noticed this week there are some cases of the Prime Minister being, say, in South Australia, but diving into radio broadcasts up and down the central coast, which tells you there's late movements, positive or negative, in some of those markets. So you watch that ground game played out through the leader, but it's really driven out of a very centralised campaign headquarters. Um, I think the 2010 campaign was was unusual in the sense that both leaders, the Prime Minister then, Julia Gillard, hadn't had the job very long. Um, and Tony Abbott was, in December 2009, the third leader, fourth if you count John Howard, that we'd had in two and a half years. So we didn't know what we didn't know, and a lot of time was spent from December up until when the campaign was called. That was a very interesting contest because both uh, parties and both leaders were at the same position in terms of getting the travelling party organised. You don't notice this so much in the real world, sitting back here now looking at the campaign, but... 
Each political office of 40-odd staff is responsible for the logistics of the Prime Minister and the JET and 50 people, and also a travelling plane of media in our case in 2010-2013. That was 30 media sometimes. Sometimes it was 80. You have to physically move their bags and them and buses and hotel rooms. We had one time in the 2013 campaign where we slept in the same hotel bed two nights in a row. Other than that, you're literally moving the logistics of this massive machine without letting anybody know where you're going because everyone will overanalyse the seat you've gone to or the announcement you've made. And so the logistics are enormous. They're not done by anybody other than political staff. So you are losing brain power from your travelling team to put them in bag schlepping and plain organisational jobs. So you've got this massive movement of the leader and at the same time, that leader has to be completely plugged in with campaign headquarters. I think my frustration comes with the lack of policy, genuine policy debate that occurs. Yes, inside elections, I think it's missing. It certainly has been on the decline, in my experience, since the 90s. But more importantly, uh, in that three-year period, there's a handful of journos in the gallery that if they called the office wanting detail in a particular policy area, um, defence, social policy and others you'd think, well, that's bloody serious and we better get in and caucus before we go back with a response or set up a sit-down interview. And there are others that would send through questions and you think, well, they haven't even read the document, they certainly weren't at the press conference, and I don't think they even have a sense of how the funding constraints with hospitals might work or uh, the detail on the NBN. So I think one of the disappointments um, people have said is that We've had a double dissolution and we've had it over the ABCC with little debate about the ABCC, but um, if the Prime Minister is returned and they lose seats, that we've, loosed, we've lost seats for an economic plan. We haven't lost seats for any great reform. And sadly in Australia, both sides of major politics are not under pressure from business for reform. And the reason we had this extraordinary 25 years of growth is... A, reforms from Labor and reforms from successive Liberal governments. So over here under the Hawke-Keating years um, and then through the, the remainder of the Howard years, we are where we are in many respects economically because governments of both sides have been prepared to put a stake in the ground and argue an issue out and defend an issue and lose government over an issue if necessary. And we're losing ticker, I think, in Canberra on tackling some of these big issues. I think it's incredibly important because we're an ageing population, our cost profile and everything we care about, health and education and infrastructure, is getting higher and higher and higher and it doesn't look to be any sustainable way to fund it unless we reorganise our affairs. And you can have growth in the economy, that's great, but growth will not match up to where our spending's headed. So I think it's just so important that we, we have an open debate and I think Australians are quite prepared to have that debate. They want to see their politicians step up with conviction and have that debate. But at the moment... We're so bloody poll-driven, we see a poll, we drop the issue, we move on to the next one. And I think that's part of the level, that's part of the reason why there's this high level of disengagement. Thanks. And Ben? In 1987, we didn't have mobile phones. Uh, We carried this brick around with us in 1990, but, but in 1987, we had to go into principal's offices and the, and, and the, the matron's office and, and, and just commandeer a telephone um, when you're on the road. There was, the coordination was just so difficult. And, of course, there was no social media. 
Um, and and what the, the mistakes that were made back then is that we drove elitists to exhaustion. Um, they would wake up to a whole string of, uh, of radio commitments. Uh, they would do two or three events through the day, at least one doorstop, and then they'd be doing fundraisers at night and then go to bed exhausted. And, and so that kind of thing was just crazy and that had to change. And now everything is just so well targeted these days to the point where the whole strategy really is built around a single doorstop. And, and they're, they're more managed than ever. Um, back in the, in the 80s, the media would get the full week laid out, which, you know, in retrospect, was, was, it didn't give you, didn't give you much flexibility. But yeah, they would know from Monday to Friday where they would be. What city? What... And, yeah, what city. And then if you made a change, of course, that became a big deal. Why are they doing that? Well, that's clearly because they're getting belted in South Australia. And, and it led to that kind of, um, and, and quite rightly, to that sort of analysis. Uh, so we gave the, the media a lot of information. Um, you might say it's a good thing, but it disadvantaged the, disadvantaged the politicians. Um, and, and now it's... Um, I just think the control is excessive so that you can get in a, in a bus now, get out of your hotel into a bus and not know where you're going, or you can head off to the, to the airport not knowing um, what city you might be headed for. Um, and, and the doorstops, um, and Malcolm Turnbull is particularly adept at this, is that he'll take five questions and there are no follow-ups on any questions, so you can give the answer that you want to give and that's it. Um, just the other day he was asked about the, the plebiscite and, uh, and he said, oh, haven't we got any more questions on the economy? Anyone got another question on the economy? So he got another one on that and never did get back to the plebiscite. And, and so you can kind of control things, I think, a whole lot uh, more efficiently uh, than happened in the 80s. We also know from um, political surveys that the electorate is, being, is getting more volatile. Well, I mean, Queensland was a state where, they, um, where the Labor Party was reduced to a netball team and then won the next election. Um, that was an extraordinary turnaround and... Uh, they're so volatile in Queensland that there's only one seat in the entire state that the Labor Party has always held, and it's um, uh, the seat of Rankin. So that volatility is, is more so in Queensland than anywhere else. But when, when you've got a situation where you've had... Uh, we've had about eight bumpy years now, really bumpy years. Um, we haven't seen anything like it since perhaps the late 70s, and it's probably worse than that, um, and four prime ministers in the last three and a half years, and that's coincided with the global trend a global trend against the system and against the institutions. So is it any wonder that uh, one poll showed that 28% of people in this election plan to vote for someone other than the major parties? In my view, it's not so much about the... Uh, and the vision thing people always complain about, and they say that it's not there. And the other thing that they complain about is that there's no real differences between the major parties. And this time around, I think that's just not true. There are differences. It, it really is the old, um, you know, the classic capital versus Labor campaign in many respects. It's, 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 um, it's Malcolm Turnbull playing the traditional uh, conservative approach on, on managing the economy against Labor saying you can raise taxes and, and improve services. Um, so that's the one big difference. There are differences on health. There's differences on, on Gonski and education. There are differences on the NBN and on, uh, on climate change. Um, so I, I think this time around that's, that's one complaint that we can't make. And I, I certainly agree they should be prepared to fail a bit, but I think where Turnbull has gone wrong, and I know that the, um, the theory is that he lost the middle ground because he didn't um, continue to promote issues like the Republic and gay marriage and, and, and climate change and so on, but I think that what happened to Malcolm Turnbull from January through to April is that he put up issues without any real conviction and, and was bound to fail. I mean, it's one thing to... Um, I think, to put ideas up that you're really convinced with and, and, and you'll die in the trenches for it, and if you fail, you fail. But he put up ideas like the 15% increase in the GST. He, he floated the idea of the, the states 
um, um, striking their own income taxes. He talked about the, the federal government paying only for the private schools and the states looking after the state schools. And they all just went by the board after very ordinary debates. And, and so he, he, he built up this reputation of being a ditherer um, uh, who didn't have convictions. And, and so I, I do agree that, that uh, politicians should try harder. On, on, um, on, they should be conviction politicians and be prepared to fail, but that's not what Malcolm Turnbull has done, and, and that's why I think he's disappointed people. You mentioned asylum seekers. It's, it's the nature of the debate around asylum seekers, and that's what's gone missing in this campaign. But l- let's accept that, broadly speaking, for the sake of the argument, you accept the argument that to, to prevent the drownings, then you support turnbacks and you support offshore detention. But within that, why can't we have the debate about whether or not the people caught up in this are treated with a bit of care and with a bit of humanity. Um, you, can, you can support both major parties' policies but still run an argument that we are cruel to the people once they're in offshore detention. When Malcolm Turnbull was asked about this on, on Q&A and he was asked the question, how did you feel when you saw the self-immolation? And, and he said, it's a terrible abandonment of hope. Now, if that's the view of the Prime Minister, that these people have abandoned all hope and then say, but it's not our responsibility. We might have rounded them up and dumped them there, but it's not our responsibility any longer. Why can't we have that debate? Because these people's lives are being ruined. They are not Australian. They're mainly Muslims, let's face it. But it's time we had a debate around that. Oh, there you have it. That was the closest that that event had to actually talking politics. And that was Barry Cassidy being quite uh, hot under the collar about the refugee issue, which is very impressive, I thought. Now, in such a, a uh, an audience. Now, both of those two people uh, got an applause for their for their stand on particular things. I leave it to you to see what was the most important stance. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Peter Krenlin said at a point, "She's not a politician. I'm not running for office." You know what politicians do. They always deny the thing that's going to happen. So you heard it here first on. Uh, Solidarity breakfast. (laughs) You should be scared. You should be very scared. Anyway, as I said, it's not too late to support Solidarity Breakfast in its uh, climb up the ladder of supporting 3CR in its uh, next 40 years on air. Very important. Uh, That piece of stuff that we've just been listening to you uh, shows you that uh, the whole notion of uh, 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 transparency and unbiased perspective is actually uh, quite a moot point when you consider that uh, our mainstream media is has actually got two people as leading lights who are actually straight out of the two major political parties and that's considered to be free and fair. So all very strange. Uh, Anyway, help us raise our money. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, 
Call the station on 9419 8377. And I say, as I said, we're going to take you to the very important issue of refugees. <clears throat> We've just mentioned the uh, self-immolation death of a very young fellow, 24 years old, uh, on in the detention centre offshore. And uh, Stephen Langton was so uh, overwhelmed by this that he actually sprayed graffiti on the outside of uh, Turnbull's office in Sydney, uh, Omid R.I.P., and he was consequently charged with... Uh, damage to property. Outside on the 29th of June, there was uh, speeches before the case was heard. Uh, We have to thank uh, Vivian Langton, uh, Stephen's wife, in fact, but uh, a fellow broadcaster from BZE, a program that's uh, uh, played on 3CR, which is produced for 3CR and is played at five o'clock on Mondays. But this is a, another issue. Uh, that's an environmental program. But, of course, human rights is at the top of the agenda of 3CR's work. Malcolm Turnbull's office stands as a symbol of the oppression and cruelty against asylum seekers in our nation, And what Stephen did was write a simple message outside Malcolm Turnbull's office, R.I.P. Omid, a man who died, and died because of the actions of this government, holding him and so many of his fellow friends in a situation which is nothing short of a concentration camp, inhumane and horrific conditions. And we stand here in solidarity with Stephen to highlight the issues and to support him at this time. We acknowledge the land on which we stand as Aboriginal land and acknowledge their elders and brave activists and fighters from Pemulwuy to Raymond Jackson to Ken Canning. I do not regret what I have done, writing Ahmed's name on Turnbull's office. He died terribly and our government and, Tur- and Malcolm Turnbull are responsible. They violated Ahmed Masumali's, sorry, Masumali's human rights and refugee rights, guaranteed, guaranteed by the 1951 UN Convention on Refugees, which Australia has signed. If I was braver than I am, I would have broken my bail conditions and written Omid R.I.P. all over Sydney, so no one can forget his name, the name of a 24-year-old refugee whose name means hope in Farsi. His death should always be on our conscience. His family statement is heartrending. But this is not the time to talk of how terrible the situation is, how we are sliding into fascism, which is a denial of human rights, but a time to fight back by every ethical means available to us non-violent direct action. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, there are certain things that it is an honour to be arrested or imprisoned for. The struggle for justice is worth being imprisoned for. Damage to property is regrettable, but if the damage to property can, stand, can stop the destruction of human beings, then we must do it. We demand the immediate closure of Manus and Nauru and all the camps. We demand the safe passage of refugees from Indonesia and Malaysia. We demand the end of locking up refugees and towing back boats. We demand the fast-tracking of those on inhuman visas to citizenship. We demand a Human Rights Act that will stop the scapegoating of refugees, indigenous people or any other minority. We demand the swift transport here of Syrian refugees as the Canadian government brought 20,000 people quickly to Canada and welcomed them. We demand an end to the lie which is border protection. The protection we need and will fight for is the protection of human rights in this country. On a larger canvas, we demand proportional representation to break the two-party stasis. We demand the breakup of the Murdoch media empire in Australia. 
We demand the democratisation of the ABC with real connection to civil society so it can contribute to a cultural and political revitalisation of this country. The ABC has shown none of the footage of the 100 days of protests on Nauru. Why not? It has not reported the public protests against the victimisation of refugees. Why not? I'd like to welcome, if I can, Sister Susan Connolly. St Joseph, to improve my image. <laughs> and I improve my image by standing with a person like Stephen Langford, a long-time friend, uh, a wonderful human being who has done so much for the people I love, the people of East Timor, and we must get him moving on Papua next. But here we, we stand in front of the drawing of this beautiful man, Omid. And Stephen, in his talk, he mentioned the word scapegoating. I'd just like to fill that out a little, if I may. You know, scapegoating uh, has three significant features. First of all, there's a crisis. Now, you know the story of Oedipus. Oedipus, poor old Oedipus. There he was in Thebes, and there's a terrible plague coming to Thebes, a shocking social crisis. Somebody's to blame. Somebody must be to blame. Look at this Oedipus here. He's supposed to have killed his father and slept with his mother. What a shocking affront to our civilization. He must be to blame for the plague. And anyway, if we blame him, we'll get away with it because, like, he is a foreigner after all. And there's something really wrong. I mean, he limps. We don't want that in our gene pool. So Oedipus gets it in the neck. So you've got a crisis and a crime and then a scapegoat who has to fulfil certain criteria. What a, a, a marvellous comparison with uh, the asylum seekers or with Omid. There's a crisis. There sure is a crisis. More refugees in this world than e at any other time. And Australia taking the crisis upon itself, fulfilling the description that Alan Renouf, the head of the Department of Foreign Affairs at one stage, said, Australians are a frightened and intimidated people. And our fear and insecurity is the crisis that we are facing at the moment. Now, somebody must be to blame. Who can we blame for this? We're not going to blame our politicians. We're not going to blame the increasing materialism of our society that brings such meaninglessness into our young people that the shocking figure of suicide being the, the greatest cause of death for young people 18 to 30 in Australia, that is appalling. And when you put it beside the suicide of our dear friend Omi, who was condemned to meaninglessness by our increasingly meaningless society in Australia. But, of course, we've got to have a crime. You've got a crisis. You've got to blame somebody for a crime. And uh, the asylum seekers. They fulfil the, fulfil the requirement of scapegoating. They're foreigners, after all. And, you know, many of them are Muslims. Who want, we want one here. If they were all Christians, if they were all Christians on Manus and Nauru, I guarantee it would be a different story. What a shocking indictment of our society. But anyway, there's a crime. Oh, the crime. What is the crime? They crossed our border. They didn't stay in the queue. They're illegal. My goodness. And our, we, we swallow it. So we've got a crisis a crime, and these people fulfil this criteria. And we've got a man like Stephen Langford who comes along with the moving finger, and he writes, and we know the old poem, the moving finger writes, and having writ moves on. And all thy piety nor wit 
shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. Stephen has taken upon himself to write the obituary of Omid on the wall of the Prime Minister of this country. What a wonderful testimony to meaning here in Australia. We, we, we need this type of... What are we doing here? Making another, another $100,000? Give me a break. We lack meaning, and it's people like Stephen who give us meaning. So whatever happens in here today, we know that the moving finger has written. And in face of the fear and insecurity of our nation, there's a man who stands there without fear and without insecurity. And I am proud to stand beside him. Thank you, Stephen. And if you ever get into this mess again, I want to be here. Thank you. I'm delighted to see so many people here today. I'd like to invite James Suffle, if I can, from the Refugee Action Coalition to talk to us and address us today. Please welcome him. Thanks. We all here know, like, Stephen's a man who, you know, week in, week out, does everything he can to try and raise his voice against injustice and, you know, to raise the alarm about what's going on on the ruined Manus Island. And that's all he was really doing with, with Amid, you know, with the act of writing his name on Turnbull's office. Uh, and how can it be a crime to, to try and raise the alarm about what's going on with our refugee policies, particularly the situation on Nauru, particularly what it's done to Amid and what it's doing to so many people uh, in his situation? It's not a crime to, you know, to try and raise the alarm to, to do what Stephen's done. The real crime is what's happening now on Nauru and Manus Island. And really, if there are criminals here, it's not Stephen Langford, it's Malcolm Turnbull, it's Peter Dutton, it's Scott Morrison. I mean, who are the people that are responsible for killing this man on Manus Island, Amid? Who are the people that are responsible for killing Rakib, another man who you know, committed suicide a week or so after him? Who are the people responsible for what Hadan you know, was pushed to, to do to herself in you know, self-immolating as well? You know, there are a score of people now who have died you know, in these detention centres. You know, Hamid, Karzai, Manus, Reza, um, Barati on Manus Island as well. It's, it's the government, it's Malcolm Turnbull that's responsible for these deaths. And in, you know, in a very real sense, these are the people that should be in the dock today. These are the people that should be on trial for the actions uh, from what, in terms of what they're doing on the ruined Manus Island. Torturing people, you know, pushing people to the brink of despair. And we've seen you know, countless experts have come out to say that this is, this is torture, that you know, this is an unacceptable situation. Just last week we had Paul Stevenson, who's a trauma expert of 43 years or so experience, he says he's never seen a situation like uh, on Nauru where he was there to try and counsel people as a psychologist. This is the real crime. It's not, you know, it's not Stephen writing on its name on Malcolm Turnbull's office. Really, Stephen's the hero in this situation, someone who's actually trying to bring to the public's attention, to bring to Malcolm Turnbull's attention, you know, the truth and the horror of what's going on in these offshore detention camps and doing everything in his power you know, to close them and to bring attention to this injustice. You know, I think we all know that Stephen is going to continue, you know, whatever happens today, doing that. And I want to congratulate him for that um, and lend him my support. But I wanted to invite Peter Boyle, who's the Socialist Alliance candidate for the seat of Sydney in the upcoming federal election. Please welcome him. I heard two things in the last couple of weeks that really made me feel the sense of frustration that I know Stephen feels permanently. One of these... Um, local candidates meetings in Alexandria and the deputy leader of the opposition Kenya Plebiscet came along and stood up and defended the bipartisan incarceration of asylum seekers 
on, on, on Manus and Nauru. She said, this is simply an application of our duty to protect the vulnerable. So apparently, we're locking these people up, leaving them in such despair and hopelessness that Omid commits suicide in this horrible way and that others attempt to do the same because we're protecting them. We're protecting them from those awful people smugglers. And there was this sort of a, a total silence of embarrassment in the room. I mean, that people should have been screaming and shouting at her, but it was a silence of embarrassment. And then a few days later, Monday night, and, and out in the cold and dark on Town Hall Square to commemorate the 100 days of the protests in Nauru, and Alana just just told us what she saw. She broke the law and told us what she saw in Nauru. And there was a total disconnect between the stories that she was telling us and this image that uh, Tanya Plevisek tried to put in our minds that somehow Australian government was protecting these people in, in these camps. Totally, totally, totally disconnected. But I think I want to say, I, I, uh, this morning, just before coming here, I actually did see some good news. I don't know whether you've all picked it up. There's an article published on The Guardian Online uh, of a new survey done by the Australia Institute that I think to the first time now shows that a majority of Australians in this poll reject the bipartisan policy of detention in Manus and Nauru. So I think you know, the frustration that we all feel here should not lead us to despair that we can win this battle, the battle of hearts and minds, because I think we are. And all the different acts of resistance, of speaking out, despite the great horrible silences and lies, including the ones by Stephen, have brought us to this point and will take us further to winning on this question. Great, especially when we're fighting not only the coalition but the position of the Labor Party on these issues and often it feels like it's a hill that's insurmountable that can't be climbed but as we heard from an earlier speaker uh, rocks are broken with roots aren't they? The roots of trees uh, can break those rocks and that's something that we're compelled to do. Our next speaker and I want to just note the important role of so many churches so many faith-based organizations in our community who have supported the issue of refugees. I wanted to invite uh, Reverend Mar Margaret Mayman from Pitt Street Uniting Church to come and address us. Please give her a round of applause. Thank you. I am proud to stand here in support of Stephen, who is a member of my congregation. When Stephen told me that he'd been arrested, I think he was a little bit embarrassed and worried about what I would think because it was a, an, a crime against property that he's been accused of. But really, property pales into insignificance in terms of the damage that has been done to human beings. One of the things that Stephen has shared with me and with our congregation is the statement from Omid's family, which told us that Omid's name means hope and that they felt at that moment in hearing about his terrible death, true hopelessness, that their hope, their hope in their son who was to have a new life and new possibilities for them to be safe and to be free, that that hope was gone. I think that in the actions that Stephen is taking, and along with so many people who are standing in solidarity with him and with people seeking asylum. What we are doing is taking steps to restore hope because while their hope is gone and that is truly tragic and, and it is truly tragic the number of lives that have been destroyed by this appalling policy, we must keep hopeful. And, and as the last speaker said, 
things will change only because we keep raising our voices. And when there's media silence, then all you can do is write somebody's name, write Omid R.I.P. When I saw, I didn't know that Stephen was the author of those signs, but when I saw them um, being reported on, it gave me hope. It gave me hope that Australian people will not let Omid's name be forgotten. We will remember this young man, this 24-year-old man from Iran. We will remember the others who have been named. We will keep speaking their names until this has changed, because we can do better. There are solutions. There are ways that we, with all the wealth and space that we have here in Australia, can be a generous, welcoming and hospitable people. It's been wonderful to see that we haven't sort of retreated into a kind of well-behaved, middle-class response to what Stephen's done. We have said, we are with you, because we believe that Stephen is with Omid, and that is what matters at the moment. So thank you all for being here, and please keep going, keep being courageous, keep finding creative ways to raise the voice of people who have no voice. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. A weak solidarity bricky team lister when after weeks, seemingly endless weeks, finally the day of El Exit. But on that exit bit, big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull said Brexit meant true blue Aussies had no choice but to vote for the caring business class and the hayseed and sheepshit parties. And Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Short and Ambition said Brexit meant true blue Aussies had no choice but to vote for the Socialists. But given neither gave detail other than adding stability to growth and jobs and innovation on the one hand and to save Medicare on the other, we can only hope they give us three votes and we can vote for a lot of them to make a good thing of it. Which means we've already launched into our very special week that was election report aimed at helping us decide, listener. Now, Malcolm said he had a plan and little Billy said he had a plan which is good because it beats them saying, vote for me because I haven't got a clue, I haven't got a plan. Well, they don't need to spell out they haven't got a clue, but still in the pursuit of truth and objective journalism and in our role of providing a guide to where to land the shaky pencil, we put the obvious. Uh, Malcolm, what is your plan? My plan for the country is to remain big supremo. Uh, and little Billy, my plan for true blue Aussies is to become big supremo. I sort of meant policies, a plan with policies, ideas. That is my policy, I told you. It's a great idea. I don't follow, I told you my plan, and electing me is a great idea. <clears throat> it's such a tough choice between the political offices, isn't it? Not sure that helped much, but we'll push on. Malcolm did say he is still the same person who got rolled as would-be big supremo in 09 or whenever, which, to put it as kindly as possible, is stating the obvious. Of course he's the same person. He's still Malcolm Tunner Ball. The only minor change is in order to achieve my exciting plan for the country, I've had to show how flexible I am and recognise the caring business class party is a broad church. It shows I respect democracy uh, by abandoning principled positions you've always claimed to hold by respecting democracy, and it's only a few little principled positions. 
like the little matter of marriage equality. Should Malcolm's thought win and the plebiscite survive the hatred and vitriol and bigotry the dear baby Jesus lobby demands be legalised, so it can campaign with sacred, pious, Christian hatred and vitriol and bigotry and succeed the plebiscite, we can be sure those the lot influencing the new Malcolm who tell us a plebiscite represents real democracy won't continue to demand a conscience vote, as they call it. Some may cruelly suggest an unconscious vote, because we know, like Malcolm, they just love democracy. They, the lot influencing the new Malcolm, wouldn't want it both ways, which is probably an unfortunate phrase given the subject. We pointed out last week there wasn't a lot of public left to be privatised in our free universal health system, especially given the government sees private health funds as the public sector and the Socialist Party says it won't upset the cosy little government private health fund nexus. But still we have to concede privatised medicine is more efficient. The private sector decides unilaterally, despite what the contract says, that it will no longer fund this procedure and that procedure and all these other procedures. Oh, sorry, that is no longer covered. What bad luck. If only it had a lobotomy. I feel like I have. Oh, and your next premium is due. Get it in quickly or you won't be covered. We wouldn't want that, would we? and all these other procedures, transferring the costs back to the public sector and or the person who took out insurance so she, he wouldn't have to pay what she, he now has to pay. Sort of quid pro quo. You give us the money to be private and we'll handball back the costs. Win-win. Surgical removal of the public stroke public's purse. That fine example of why we need more women in Parliament, the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaelia Kosh the Workers, promises a tough public interest test to prevent evil unions amalgamating, backed up by the True Blue Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association, which stated the obvious. It's hard to believe an amalgamation of two self-declared militant unions could be in the public interest. It's most certainly not in our private interest, which everyone knows equates, of course, to the public interest, whereas with evil unions, it's all self, self, self. No thought for anyone else for the public good. Thank you, Michaelia. A pleasure. Then again, Macaya, this report shows 70% of brokers dealing in derivative trading are breaking the law. You'll address that, we assume, eh? Her Most Gracious gracious Majesty's Royal King Commission, perhaps. That illegality, if there is illegality, I'll remind you this is totally unproven, uh, but it's the government regulator who said so. Please don't interrupt. You're very rude. Let me finish. It's clearly a result of evil, evil unions corrupting good people. Those poor traders. Well, at least evil unions got a mention, given that the raison d'etre for the double disillusion hasn't rated a mention in eight weeks. Until tomorrow, we assume, when they'll declare they now have a mandate to smash evil unions. In the public interest, of course. Wouldn't the world be a better place if it wasn't for evil unions? I don't know why caring employers don't do the obvious and eradicate workers from the equation altogether. Thursday, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, that voice for those like caring employers and Macadia and little Billy, who recognise there are no class differences, no class warfare, 
if only evil unions were so perspicacious. The troubler was he capitalist reviewed delivered its election editorial, telling us Malcolm has the solution to our no-class struggle problems. For this newspaper, it advised, there is no alternative but to support Mr Tunner Bull and the coalition. Gee, that came like a bolt from the blue. Yet, compared to Lord Rupert of Wapping, the capitalist reviewers looked like the epitome of neutrality and objective balance. Thank goodness we've got the week that was for real balance. Malcolm and big economic guru Scuttle them more last son have chorus for eight weeks about a socialist party black hole sending the country broke. But, uh, Malcolm, you've promised billions for local amenities in every marginal seat across the country. What's that add up to? One economist suggests it adds up to more than all the socialist promises. With respect, don't be silly. It's just a few billion here and a few billion there. It can't be compared to the irresponsible socialist profligate spending. Uh, well, where will this money come from if you also lower taxes for the filthy bloated? There's this round thing, and Scuttle them assures me there's plenty of money in the barrel. That was the week that was his final special election report. Hope we've been able to help us make the big decision. Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country made the big decision, accepting you'll cop millions of refugees if you don't vote for me, Nigel Farago of Lies' argument that impoverished desperates fleeing British, well, coalition of the killing, bombs and destruction and disruption and instability were the sole cause of poverty and unemployment in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country. And the awful outcome is it may backfire. France, which has been herding the desperates into concentration camps, just like Troubadour was he, preventing them from getting over or under the channel, now says there's no need to prevent them getting over or under the channel anymore. Poor Nigel may have to recruit the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country poor and desperate to protect the borders and fight off the hordes of poor and desperate, the other poor and desperate, who the defender poor and desperate know are making them poor and desperate. Nothing whatever to do with the greatest little economic order of them all. And their Socialist Party says the shock result comes down fairly and squarely to Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Jeremy Corbyn which makes it surprising they want to overthrow him given he has so much power and influence. Hope their real motive isn't that he isn't quite as convinced as they are that the greatest little economic order of them all is the greatest little economic order of them all mightn't quite be. The result led to the resurrection of a former week that was regular, former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander! subsidising his not insignificant public purse pension with a high con missioner salary who told us he had spoken to a cross-section of locals. Ambassadors, government members and the business community. Well, they speak for the riffraff saving Alexander from such pollution. Heaven forbid having to meet real people. Hate to say it, but sometimes we have to question whether Alexander is a real person. Maybe he's a caricature of himself. Wonder if he still splits their sides with his very, very witty jokes about domestic violence. 
Notice Donald Trump or the poor on the US of the UN of the US of the world election trail turned up on a golf course he happens to own in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country. Someone should point out to him that he's a bit lost that it's outside the electorate. When this was pointed out to Donald, he promised to give them the vote if he was elected, which would, of course, be a touch late. But on the positive, that's now his best policy. Well, that's it, listener. Finally, the big decision. I can't work it out. Malcolm, Little Billy or none of the above. That, that's the bit I can't work out. How to get none of the above over the line. Good morning. Tune in for a Radical Philosophy live broadcast from Monash University featuring Associate Professor Karen Green, Professor Jana Thompson, Professor Lorraine Code, Dr Denise Russell and Professor Moira Gates. Hear a discussion on how philosophy for women has changed over the years. A joint event between the International Association of Women Philosophers and the Australasian Association of Philosophy Broadcast live from Monash University on Thursday the 7th of July between 3 and 4pm on 3CR, 8.55am, online and digital. Let's get radical about philosophy. Want to keep your radio radical? Well, it's not too late to donate to 3CR's 40th birthday radiothon and we still need your support. Call 94198377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy during our office hours to pay by cash, check or FPOS. Or simply post your check or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, 40 years of radical radio. And thanks to all those people who have supported Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we'd love some more supporters to uh, put some money into towards our target to support 3CR 40 years and 40 years more. Uh, just a cheerio to all those people out at the Desert Liberation Front who are at this moment preparing for the Lizard Bites Back protestival today. Oh, actually, it's, it started yesterday and it's going to the third. So they've decided they've either done a postal vote or they'd prefer to go to the BHP Billiton uh, Olympic Dam Mine, Roxby Down, South Australia, to uh, their creative response to the deadly nuclear in- industry. There's a party at the gates of hell, shut Roxby Down, keep uranium in the ground. So if you want to know more about that, www.lizardbitesback.net. They're in the throes of a mighty big party. We're going to move on now on Solidarity Breakfast to an interview I did with a senior or former senior lecturer in industrial relations. Uh, Tom Bramble, uh, Queensland University, Tom Bramble. Uh, he's uh, an expat from England and he's got some things to say about uh, what happened in terms of the Brexit, uh, Brexit vote in England and uh, it's uh, how it resonates for working class people in England rather than the big end of town. 
Let's start off with the idea of uh, the class analysis. Who would be wanting to stay in the EU and, and who would be more interested in going out of the EU? You know, who, would, who is actually advantaged by staying in the EU from an English point of view? When you look at who the main proponents of Remain were, it's pretty clear who was going to get the advantage from remaining in the, in the uh, in European Union. All uh, major institutions of British capitalism, all the major employer representative groups, the CBI, all the major financial groups represented by the City of London, uh, the um, Central Bank, the Bank of England, Treasury, all the main political parties, many of the media, although the Murdoch press was split on the question, um, so uh, not just locally, but uh, across Europe, uh, the, all the heads of state wanted uh, Britain to remain in the European Union, as did um, the heads of the uh, United States, uh, Japan, um, Australia, and so on and so forth. So you could say the main push behind Remain uh, was by the big capitalists that were reluctant or feared the breakup of the European Union, a process which might um, be the result of Britain exiting the, uh, the European Union. They wanted to see a big capitalist bloc maintained where the uh, big uh, capitalist companies can uh, trade unregulated and in a, um, uh, an unfettered way uh, to be able to maximise uh, profits, to be able to source labour cheaply, to be able to access raw materials uh, cheaply, to be able to invest where they wish, to repatriate their profits. And, uh, the City of London to maintain its base as the major financial centre, in fact, the world economy. That was what was at stake with this referendum. So not the uh, well-being of people who are working class and below? Not at all, no. This was, when you look at the major supporters of the Remain camp, uh, whether you're talking about David Cameron or uh, the City of London or uh, the White House, I think you'd have to say that their concerns for the British working class are uh, zero. So uh, w when people talk about, I suppose that's, uh, uh, they're envisaging a sort of a trickle-down effect, which in actual fact has been quite clearly uh, um, shown not to actually happen, trickle-down effect, that uh, people who are wealthy keep the money to themselves. But the idea that uh, in actual fact uh, the working class will be dis uh, disadvantaged because, say, uh, the cost of food will go up or uh, that they will lose uh, some of the uh, uh, protections that apparently come out of the EU. D does that have any legs, do you think? Well, I think that um, uh, the, the price of food, uh, the social protections enjoyed by British workers, I think very much these are uh, all in play now, that um, the living standards of British workers depends very much as it has always, in fact, not so much on regulations coming out of Brussels, but by the preparedness of British workers uh, and indeed workers across the continent to fight for their rights. Um, many of the uh, gains are enshrined in uh, EU regulations for uh, British workers, the Working Time Directive and so forth. Well, the first point to make is many of these have been stripped back from where they were in the 1990s. But the second point is, to, to, even before they were enshrined in EU regulations, many of them had actually been uh, fought for and won uh, by British workers and, uh, uh, and uh, were effectively in place uh, before they um, took effect in Brussels. So um, even where uh, some new uh, protections for British workers were incorporated as part of the uh, EU, 
and uh, putting you know putting to one side the fact that the Tories managed to exempt uh, uh, British uh, capitalists from uh, abiding by many of these regulations, putting it to one side. To the extent that they, these are now threatened, they were never going to be protected ultimately by the decisions by the European Council, uh, by the European Parliament, by the European Commission, by the European Central Bank. They were going to be uh, maintained and protected and possibly advanced by the struggles of uh, workers on the European continent, both inside and outside the European Union. So there's been this uh, big... Uh uh, story around uh, racist bl- backlash mm-hmm. in England, mm-hmm. and it has been pointed out that there has been a strong racist uh, element in England for a long time. Has it been uh, uh, brewed by this uh, uh, result? Well, I think you're, I think you're right to say that the racism in Britain attacks on ethnic minorities. Um, smashing windows and so forth. There's nothing new in Britain, uh, nothing new in Australia either, as we saw in uh, Perth just a couple of days ago. Um, but uh, uh, the mainstream media, if you look through the headlines of all the uh, major presses that um, have been historically uh, for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, anti-immigrants uh, and uh, as much as possible turning the attention of, um, the, in many cases, poor readership against uh, uh, minorities rather than against uh, the capitalists. Uh, this isn't just a media thing. Uh, whole successive uh, changes in legislation have uh, tightened up uh, the uh, rights of uh, immigrant workers in Britain, uh, whether from the, within the European Union or from outside. And so we entered into the referendum campaign with a, a backdrop of institutionalised um, uh, racism, uh, which is, whose aim has been, um, in many cases successfully, uh, to turn workers' grievances uh, against immigrants rather than against uh, their own governments and their own employers. Now, having said that, the uh, campaign was uh, both for Remain and for Leave, actually led by uh, two, two of the, the bearing forces of this racism over many years, that is, both by the uh, uh, majority in the Conservative Party, in, uh, Remain, led by David Cameron, uh, and also by the minority, uh, headed up by um, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, uh, who led the Leave camp. So the referendum towards the end, in particular, the question of anti-immigrant uh, uh, racism came to the fore. Uh, but I think there we have to see that the situation isn't just a question of racism, because I know some people, uh, on the left included, have seen the referendum as simply being a referendum on immigration. I think that's too simplistic. I think we have to see two things. First of all, uh, many of the areas that voted Leave uh, are actually... Uh, areas of high immigrant population. Uh, two cases have been pointed to um, some of the boroughs of London, like uh, Newham uh, in East London, very heavily immigrant population, voted uh, strongly, only 40, 47%, not a majority, but still had a very strong minority voting leave. Uh, another case is Leicester, a town in the East Midlands, very high immigrant population, uh, voted quite strongly for leave, uh, and it can mention other cases again. But this should not be to deny the fact that there was a racist uh, campaign mobilised, as I say, both by both Remain and Leave, but uh, Leave in particular, with UKIP, people like Nigel Farage, and the people like uh, Boris Johnson. But the crucial thing here is how did this come about? Why was it that the campaign ultimately became, uh, at its leadership level, a campaign between two sections of establishment racists, uh, old Etonians <laughs> in both cases? Yeah, that's right. Um, 
That's right. Um, speaking on behalf of the common person, that was because of a decision by the Labor Party, the vast majority of whose leaders are Blairites in one shape or another, uh, and also the leaders of um, British trade unions, 90% of them at least, who uh, threw their support behind the Remain camp. What that did was to leave those workers who voted leave because they are pissed off uh, by the degradation of their living conditions, by unemployment, by impoverishment, by a shortage of public housing, by lousy public transport. The grievances of these workers were able to be mobilised by the Boris Johnsons, by the Nigel Farages, because of the uh, absence of a strong left-wing working-class uh, voice in this campaign. So, yes, the Nigel Farages, the UKIPs, the Boris Johnsons and so forth were able to um, fish in these waters of working-class discontent, but they're only allowed to do so because the left that should have been leading uh, those workers to express their opposition to all the degradation and immiseration of the British working class over the last um, 30 or 40 years um, was not, combi not combined with an anti-racist voice that only the left could have provided. Because the Labour Party, including Jeremy Corbyn, under pressure from his uh, majority in his um, shadow cabinet and the trade union leaders, essentially fell in behind the Remain camp, that basically left the entire field open to the, um, the racist Tories and UKIP. Now, ten, the 10% of unions that didn't back the Remain vote, do, do you think it, their, their analysis, which is uh, more around the idea that uh, by going out of the EU, that would then, if, the, if it forces a general election and then you do get a party in that is prepared to uh, roll back the uh, austerity measures and govern for the entire country rather than just for the uh, capitalist class, that if they remained in the EU, EU it would be impossible for, that, uh, for a government to actually uh, do that. And now that the English are out of the EU, then they're in a position to actually uh, govern in a way they want to govern. Has that got legs? Well, um, I think that... Um the few unions, like the, um, uh, I think it was the Rail, Tram and, uh, Rail and Tramways Union, the Public Transport Union, uh, maybe the Fire Brigades Union, who uh, urged to vote for leave, saw that they would have greater possibility of defending um, workers' rights uh, without the interference of the European Commission, which, uh, let's not forget, is an unelected body of technocrats, so-called experts, who uh, have been able to operate across the European Union without any democratic accountability uh, to essentially force governments to strip away uh, some of the uh, remaining benefits and welfare systems that have been won over the last uh, 50 or 60 years in Europe. You only have to look at the situation in Greece. In fact, exactly 12 months ago, when the uh, Greek workers rose up in their own referendum not to accept the bailout, so-called bailout, that was being um, offered by the European uh, Commission, the IMF, um, to the uh, Greek government, in return for which the Greek government was expected to basically shred the entire welfare state. Uh, and the uh, Greek people voted, I think it was 61% for no to the bailout because they understood the um, uh, extremely restricted conditions that the, uh, that the European Union was going to enforce on them. And so I think you can't understand some of the sentiment behind leave in the case of Britain without understanding the operation of the European Union in enforcing austerity across the workers, on the workers across the European Union over the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, back in the 1980s and 1990s, 
some people in the European Union saw it as a vehicle for advancing workers' rights. They talked about things like a social charter. That's all gone now. The European Union, as proven by the case in Greece last year, has very much become a vehicle for uh, austerity and nothing but austerity, which has seen conditions of European workers stagnate over the last uh, 10 years, uh, if not actually fall. Uh, and so outside the European Union, it doesn't mean to say that it automatically will correspond with a, uh, uh, an improvement in workers' rights. You mentioned the possibility of there being an election, maybe a Labour government being elected, uh, the defeat of the Tories. But this takes us then to the central question, which is now um, the future of the Labour Party, because the Labour Party is now being thrown up in the air by the attempted um, coup by the right-wing majority inside the Parliamentary Labour Party to bring down the leader, Jeremy Corbyn. The outcome of this um, fight inside the British Labour Party will have a lot to say about which way British politics goes in the next five years. If the right-wing uh, majority in the Parliamentary Labour Party are able to force Corbyn out, their dearest wish is to form a, a political bloc with the Tories to make the costs of disengagement from the European Union, to make those costs borne by the workers, to uh, introduce austerity budgets, and so on and so forth. If Corbyn is able to defeat his uh, right-wing enemies inside the Parliamentary Labour Party, then that opens up the potential of a serious fight within the British working class, both against austerity that they've suffered over the last 30 years, uh, at the hands both of the British government and the uh, European Union, but also an anti-racist fight to defend the rights of immigrants and refugees uh, within Britain. That's, what's, that's where the game is now. What's yeah. going on within the Labour Party? That's fascinating, isn't it? Well, I was thinking with the right wing in the Labour Party, it really exposes where their allegiances are, doesn't it? Absolutely. They would rather the Labour Party lose um, with uh, Corbyn at the head than to see Corbyn win. Their argument, uh, their public argument, is that with Corbyn in the leadership, we can't win the election. I think their private fear is it with Corbyn under the leadership, they can win the election. That's right. Because they do, not want, they do not want the Labour Party to form government with a left-wing Social Democrat at its head because it would expose their entire agenda for the last 30 years, uh, which was um, shaped by the Labour Party in the 1980s, which is essentially to mimic the Conservative Party, but with softer rhetoric. Yeah, that's and Tony right. Blair was, of course, the, the main architect of this. Uh, but he's not been alone. Gordon Brown followed a similar agenda as well. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're all the same. They're all the same. But anyway, the other the other thing is uh, what's going on with the Conservatives and Boris Johnson's yeah. uh, desire to become the Prime Minister? That's right. Well, right. well, one of the arguments that was put by people on the left who argued for leave was that uh, a majority for leave would create a crisis in the ranks of the Conservative Party. And let's understand, the Conservative Party is the dominant party for the management of British capitalism uh, and British imperialist interests for the last uh, 150 years. It is the Team A, um, the Premier Division, uh, of the um, uh, political elite. Uh, and so the fact that they are now, well, number one, David Cameron has been forced to resign just one year after winning a majority at the last uh, national election. Number two, Boris Johnson. There was an argument put that if you vote leave, Cameron will go, 
Johnson will come in and it will be an all-out assault on the working class. Well, within a week of the referendum result, Johnson has been forced to pull back and to withdraw what was widely assumed to be his candidacy for the leadership. Uh, Michael Gove got in first, stabbed Johnson in the back. Uh, Theresa May from the uh, Remain camp has put her name forward. Uh, Liam Fox, uh, one other character. Uh, and so the Conservatives are now in a situation where even though most of the media focus is on the uh, turmoil inside the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, too, is being ripped apart the um, uh, aftermath of the referendum. This is the, the grand party of British capitalism, the one that the, all the rich people in Britain look to to govern their affairs. They are now uh, tearing each other. And this process is going to go on for months. Cameron is not set to stand down from being leader until late October, and there's some pressure on down to November. During this period, the, the British uh, Conservatives as a government, are being uh, pulled and pushed around the question of do they invoke what's called Article 50, that is to start the process of pulling out the European Union. It's a situation, a broader situation, where there's greater uncertainty, economic uncertainty in the world economy, with America slowing down, uh, much of the European Union, uh, economic stagnation, China slowing down. So you have a situation where the, even like the, the people that govern are in a mess. Their political system is in a mess at the moment. Their economic system is in a mess. Now, this doesn't necessarily make it good for the left and for the working class movement. That's, again, why we come back to the Labour Party. Because if the Tories are allowed to work their way through their crisis and come out the other end united behind a new leader, and the left and the workers' movement hasn't pushed forward in this period, then, yes, the, the, the City of London, uh, the Financial Times... The IMF can breathe a sigh of relief. But if the left is able to push forward to rally behind Corbyn to defeat the right-wing um, Parliamentary Labour Party members, then there's a real possibility for a breakthrough um, in British politics for the working-class movement, the Labour movement, uh, to take advantage of the, um, uh, the crisis inside the Conservative camp. Oh, that would be fantastic. It would indeed, yes. <laughs> As a refugee from Margaret Thatcher, I'd be very pleased to see that. That was Tom Bramble. He's a former senior lecturer at uh, Queensland University in Industrial Affairs, and he was talking about Brexit. And uh, the uh, program, this is the end of the program, we started off with a little bit of a, a piece about the inside story on the Australian election, which was held at the Melbourne Uni. It was really about the nature of propaganda and how it supports the two-party system. We then took you outside Sydney Court, where Stephen Langford was charged with uh, writing RIP Ombid on Turnbull's uh, election office, electoral office, and uh, apparently that case has been deferred till after the uh, election. So we'll t keep you abreast of what happens there. Uh, we went on to This Is The Week That Was. Uh, we have to announce that uh, Lynn Beaton, who was a uh, important Labor historian in uh, Australia uh, and activist, she and in England, in fact, she wrote a very important book called Shifting Horizons. Uh, 
Lynn Beaton died last weekend after days after her celebrating her 70th birthday with all her mates. So uh, Lynn was always a person who knew how to live a good life, but also knew how to uh, bow out at the, just at the right moment. So she died peacefully at home, and uh, which is always someone's best wish. But uh, she will be sorely missed. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, and we'll go out with a, a song by Buffy St. Marie. Uh, Buffy St. Marie came to Australia not very long ago. And I remember having a conversation with Lynn, who uh, she told me that uh, Buffy St. Marie was one of her great heroes. She inspired Lynn. And so I uh, brought a founder track that Kralapral. Uh, Valley Saskatchewan uh, that um, Buffy St. Marie had uh, sung and uh, because Lynn herself was an inspiration to people here so we'll play someone that inspired Lynn Vale Lynn Beaton You've just been listening to a podcast produced at 3CR Community Radio. 2016 marks 40 years that 3CR has been bringing you independent community voices. And we're asking you, our listeners, to keep us going for another 40 years by donating to our Radical Radiothon. This year, we need to make $220,000. So any amount you can afford makes a big difference. Call us on 03 9419 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for supporting Community Radio.